This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. So we began a couple of weeks ago in a new study in the life of of Joseph, and we're calling this series God Meant It for Good, because one of the things that we see in Joseph's story is that there were so many things in his life that were happening that Joseph could not possibly have understood at the time. Lots of pain, lots of unanswered questions. There were things that were were happening And Joseph was not in the position to see how God's grand plan was was coming about. But God was at work for good all the while, as he is in your life as well. And we're going to see this in chapter 40 this morning. If you look at chapter 40 of Genesis this morning, we're going to talk about when waiting is hard. When waiting is, is hard. Genesis chapter 40. We began a couple of weeks ago in chapter 37, just kind of laying the groundwork. And in chapter 37, we saw that at the age of 17, Joseph's own brothers sold him off as a slave, and he was taken to Egypt. <clears throat> and then last week, in chapter 39, we, we saw how, <clears throat> how Joseph was was wrongly accused, falsely accused of a crime that he did not commit, and then thrown into prison, which is where he is as we come to chapter 40, in prison and in, in, in Egypt, when waiting is hard. Let's look, let's look this morning at chapter 40, and I want to invite you to follow along in your, in your Bibles. If, if you're new, all the sermon notes or the outline and everything is on the back of your bulletin. If you want to take notes, sometimes it helps to do that as we kind of actively engage and, and, and follow along. Let's look at chapter 40 of the book of, of Genesis. After this, the king of Egypt's cupbearer and baker offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guards in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guards assigned Joseph to them as their personal attendant, and they were in custody for some time. The king of Egypt's cupbearer and baker, who were confined in the prison, each had a dream Both had a dream on the same night, and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they looked distraught. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were in custody with him in the master's house, why do you look so sad today? We had dreams, they said to him, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph. In my dream, there was a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms came out, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup 
was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. This is its interpretation, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. In just three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. You will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand the way you used to when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well for you, remember that I was with you. Please show kindness to me by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison, for I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that they should put me in the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was positive, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. Three baskets of white bread were on my head. In the top basket were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is his interpretation, Joseph replied. The three baskets are three days. In just three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from off you and hang you on a tree. Then the birds will eat the flesh from your body. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he gave a feast for all his servants. He elevated the chief cupbearer and the chief baker among his servants. Pharaoh restored the chief cupbearer to his position as cupbearer, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But Pharaoh hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had explained to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Last March, uh, I was able to, uh, to visit India, and it was absolutely a life-changing trip, and it was mind-blowing to see what, what God was doing in a particular part of that country. But I'll tell you, it, it looked for a while like I was not going to get there at all, and it's a long trip to India. But the most problematic part of the trip was the, the little first leg of the journey, just a little puddle jumping flight from Norfolk to the Newark airport in, in, the, in the New York area. It's just like a 45 minute flight. Weather was beautiful. We got on the plane in Norfolk on time. Everything is on course. So we get on the plane on time, perfect day, and we sit there on the runway. And we sit there and we sit there. And the pilot would come on, you know, every 15 or 20 minutes, and he would say, you know, I'm sorry, the airport in, in Newark is so busy, they can't receive planes right now, and so it won't even do us any good to take off. I'm thinking, well, if that were the case, then, you know, why are we sitting on this hot plane on this runway? You know, we could be inside the airport in the air conditioning. But anyway, we were there, and there we sat, and then the, the goalpost just kept getting pushed back and pushed back. Another 15, 20 minutes, another 15, 20 minutes. We sat there for probably, I don't know, an hour, an hour and a half. But you know what? We had built margin into the, the trip. And I know air, air travel these days, you can sort of count on something not going right. It's going to be delays. So, you know, margin was built in and we took off, took off in plenty of time uh, to make it to, to Newark uh, with no problem for my flight to, to Delhi. But then we got to the New York area and I noticed that the plane was not landing. The plane was circling. <laughs> Great views of Manhattan at night below us. And I got, got to see it from every angle because we're just going in circles 
around the city. And so the pilot comes on again and he says, you know what, they are still too busy in the Newark airport to receive our plane. So we're just gonna be in this, this holding pattern for a while. Well, by now I am glancing at my watch and I am praying fervently, God, please get this plane on the ground because if I miss my flight to Delhi, there aren't many flights to Delhi and there was a whole bunch of people on the other end and all kinds of plans were gonna have to be rearranged and everything. It was gonna be such a hassle. And so I am praying for that, that that wing to just tip down and for us to be headed, headed down. And, and as it turns out, um, we were fine. And the reason we were fine is because my flight to Delhi was also delayed. <laughs> so everything turned out okay. It, all, it was all happening for a, a reason. But uh, let me tell you, I was, I was sweating and just so frustrated, you know, as we were stuck in a holding pattern. And sometimes life seems like that. Sometimes your life feels like you are just stuck in a, in a holding pattern. And I'm struck by the fact that, that in chapter 40, the chapter begins with Joseph in prison, wrongly accused, wrongly condemned. But it begins with Joseph in prison, and where does chapter 40 end? with Joseph in prison, seemingly stuck. But as we'll see, God was very much at work during this period. What is God doing when life seems to be stuck in a holding pattern? What was God doing in Joseph's life what is he doing in our lives when, when our lives are, seem to be stuck in a holding pattern? What is he doing in our lives when waiting is hard? Well, one of the things that he's doing is refining our character during those times. God refines our, our, our character. When we first met Joseph in chapter 37, he was just 17 years old when his brother sold him off as a slave. He's taken away to Egypt. As chapter 40 opens, Joseph is no longer a 17-year-old kid. He's a 28-year-old young man. 11 years have gone by since Joseph was, was sold off to Egypt, and he's not the same person. Not the same person, not the same kind of entitled, spoiled, bratty guy <laughs> that he was when he was growing up that we saw in chapter 37, no. Because through the adversity that he had gone through, God had been at work refining his character. In Romans chapter five and verses three and, and four, the Bible says there, not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. In James chapter one, the Bible reminds us, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. 
and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter reminds us, you rejoice in this. Even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable, is refined by fire. Throughout history, uh, prized swords have been incredibly coveted possessions. Think about the great swords of history in the East, the Damascus blade. In the English-speaking world, the, uh, the, 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 Wilk, the Wilkerson uh, blade uh, made famous in the last great cavalry charge in history in 1898 at the Battle of Abdurman, where a very young British officer named Winston Churchill uh, took part. That sword was used, the Wilkinson blade was used in that battle. You think about great swords in mythology, King Arthur's Excalibur. I think about Frodo Baggins and Lord of the Ring with, with his sword Sting. And even in Star Wars, the, the, the lightsabers of the Jedi Knights. Well, the Bible tells us that God is sharpening us. And during those times in life when we can't figure out what's going on and we seem to be stuck, what's really happening is that God is sharpening us and preparing us and refining us for something that he has for us down the road. Now, how did God refine Joseph during this period? And how does he refine us? I want us to look at three different ways that God refines our character during these times. First of all, Joseph was refined to love God more than anything. Now last week, we, we saw that, that, that Joseph, was, in chapter 39, uh, that Joseph was sexually uh, propositioned by Potiphar's wife. And, and how did he respond to that sexual temptation? Let's go back to, uh, to chapter 39. And look at, at verse 9, the latter part of verse 9, and, and, and the way that he responds to her. The latter part of chapter 39 and verse 9, Joseph says, So how could I do this immense evil? And how could I sin against God? And this response is very telling about the way that God had refined Joseph's character because you can see Joseph's love for God. How could I do this immense evil? And how could I sin against God? We see his, his love for God. His life for Joseph has become pretty simple. Just live to please the Lord. Ian Duguid uh, says, says this about Joseph uh, during that time. Ultimately, Joseph's only defense against sin was a heart that wanted to please God more than to experience pleasure or avoid pain. That's our real problem. My difficult circumstances don't make me sin. The other people who invite me to join them in wrongdoing don't make me sin. My own heart draws me into sin because it wants something more than it wants to please God. 
But Joseph had been refined to the point that he loved God more than anything. He wanted to please God more than anything. Second, he had been refined to care about the needs of people. Refined to care about the needs of people. You know, one of the things that stood out about Joseph when we met him in chapter 37 and we we saw what he was like during his growing up years was how oblivious he was to the needs of the people around him. I mean, you remember, Joseph was just sort of, uh, he, was, he was just uh, tone deaf to the, to the needs of, of, of other, other people. He was, he was favored by his father and, you know, and, and rather than kind of helping that be better in his relationship with his brothers, he flaunted it. This is not the same guy here. In, in chapter 40. This is someone who's been matured to, to care about the needs of the people around him, to be more sensitive to the needs of the people around him. Look at, chapter, look at verses five through seven here in chapter 40. The king of Egypt's cupbearer and baker who were confined in the prison each had a dream. Both had a dream on the same night and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they looked distraught. Would the Joseph of chapter 37 uh, have noticed how the people around him looked? No. No. But he does now. He, 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 he notices that something's wrong with them. And so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were in custody with him in the master's house, why do you look so sad today? Joseph of earlier years would not have noticed their countenance, let alone ask them how they were doing. You know, suffering, either, if we're not walking with God, suffering can take us even more into self-absorption and narcissism. It's all about you, all about us. But if we're walking with God, if we're filled with the Spirit, then suffering can give us more empathy for people. It makes us more sensitive to the needs of people around us. It gives us more compassion for the people around us. How easy is it for all of us to just go about our own lives and not even notice the look on other people's faces around us at work or at school or among our friends? It's so easy just to be kind of consumed with our own lives, our own deal that you know, we don't really notice when someone looks like their world is falling apart, let alone ask, how's it going? What's happening? How are you doing with loving your neighbor? You know, we tend sometimes to, to limit our, our evaluation of how we're doing spiritually to how we're doing in our private devotional life. And listen, what happens in private between us and the Lord, it's vital. It is absolutely vital that you block out time to spend alone with God each day in his word and in prayer. Absolutely vital. But, but that is not the sole criteria for how we should evaluate discipleship. Another key part of the, that's an indicator of how we're doing spiritually is how are you doing at loving people? How's it going 
with loving your neighbor? Is God making you more in tune with and more sensitive to the needs of people around you? How's your love life (laughs) in the sense of loving your neighbor? That's That's a key indicator of spiritual health, right? And as a church family, Right, One of the reasons God puts us together so that we can be there for one another. That's one of the key things about gathering, physically gathering together as a church, is that you see people, and you run into people, and you converse with people, and those conversations in the hallway you know, end up being you know, conversations over coffee or lunch or dinner and real friendships develop where, where you care about one another. And being perceptive and sensitive to the needs of people around you that don't know Christ can often be what the Lord uses to open the door for gospel conversations to take place with them. The third thing that we see here is that Joseph has been refined to have a passion for God's glory. Refined to have a passion for God's glory. Let's, let's look at verse eight. So the chief cupbearer, chief baker, say, we had dreams, but there's no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. In ancient Egypt, dream interpretation was a big deal. And so there were kind of gurus uh, in, in pagan countries like this that were highly regarded for their supposed ability to interpret dreams. And so when Joseph says here in verse 8, don't interpretations belong to God, he is making a very in-your-face statement about the fact that true interpretation belongs to the one true God. Because see, Joseph is very aware of his surroundings. He's not among believers He's among a bunch of pagans who don't believe in the one true God. And so Joseph is passionate that God receive the honor and the glory. He wants God to be more famous and more known in this pagan land. And so he says, don't interpretations belong to God? See, he knows that God is going to to give him the interpretation, but he doesn't want the glory for it. He wants God to get the glory for for what is going to to happen. This is very similar to something that happens in the book of Daniel. You remember when when King Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, has, has a dream, and Daniel interprets the dream. Daniel is passionate that God received the glory for it. We see it in Daniel chapter two and verses 26 and following. The king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, 
Are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king, no wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. That's what Joseph is saying here in verse eight. Don't interpretations belong to God? He wants God to be glorified. Grant Wacker is a church historian who teaches at Duke Divinity School. And Grant Wacker has spent much of his academic life devoted to one person, Billy Graham. (laughs) And before Billy went home to be with the Lord, Grant Wacker went to the Graham home in the mountains of North Carolina at Montreat and spent a lot of time with Billy Graham and interviewed him many times. I was listening to an interview with Grant Wacker this week and the interviewer asked him, you know, what what stood out in your interaction with Billy Graham? And Grant Wacker said two things, his gratitude and his humility. And then he told the story about uh, Billy Graham's humility. The first time that he ever went to to interview him, uh, Billy Graham's uh, assistant was, was, was with him and, and, he, and he introduced Grant to, 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 to Billy Graham and he said, he said, Billy, this is Grant Wacker and he's writing a book about you. And Billy Graham just said, why? <laughs> why? And Grant Wacker said to him, he said, well, you've done a lot of great things. And Billy Graham immediately, immediately said, oh no. God has done great things through me. Notice in that response, he does not deny that God had done great things. He was deeply aware that God had done great things, but that he was only a vessel through whom God worked. He wanted God to receive the glory. That's Joseph here. Don't interpretations belong to God he, is, he has a passion for God's glory. Now in verses nine and following, we see these two dreams and they're pretty wild, right? Look at verse nine. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph. In my dream, there was a vine in front of me. On the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms came out and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Now in ancient times, a cupbearer to the king was an incredibly important position because suppose someone was, wanted to betray the king. Some, suppose someone was plotting against him. What would be a, an easy way to take his life? Poison, poison is wine. And so the chief cupbearer had the responsibility of making sure that anything that passed through the king's lips was going to be okay. This is a very high position. Look at verse 12. This is his interpretation, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. In just three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. You will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand the way you used to when you were his cupbearer. So the chief baker, who's also been in prison, been put in prison, he hears this positive interpretation, so he wants Joseph to do the same thing for him. 
Let's get down to verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was positive, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. Three baskets of white bread were on my head, and the top basket were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is its interpretation, Joseph replied. The three baskets are three days, and just three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from off you and hang you on a tree. And that word hang literally means impale. It was not a hanging like we think of, we think of a hanging. Um, it was an impaling, like, kind of like crucifixion, right? Nailed, nailed to a, a tree. In verses 20 through 22, we see that it plays out absolutely, exactly the way that Joseph said that it would. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he gave a feast for all his servants. He elevated the chief cupbearer and the chief baker among his servants. Pharaoh restored the chief cupbearer to his position as cupbearer, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but Pharaoh hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had explained to them. But before the chief cupbearer was released, Joseph had made one request of him. Let's go back to verses 14 and 15. Joseph says to him, when all goes well with you, remember that I was with you. Please show kindness to me by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison, for I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that they should put me in the dungeon. Now listen, you can just hear Joseph's pain in verses 14 and 15. He, he's not whining here. He's, he's just lamenting what has been happening for 11 years of his life. I was, I was kidnapped, I was, I was t sold, I was taken here, and then falsely ac accused, I've been thrown into this prison. Remember me. Notice that at the, at the end of verse 15, the word, the word dungeon here says, I've done nothing that they should put me in the dungeon. Literally, in Hebrew, it means pit. Pit. Joseph's life has been a series of pits for 11 years. When he was 17, his brothers threw him into a literal pit out in the wilderness. And then they sold him off and he's put in chains and taken in a caravan to Egypt into this pit of, of what had to be just emotional darkness. He's taken to a place where he knows no one as a slave. And then the moral and spiritual pit that was obviously in the house of Potiphar. And now the pit of this prison, this dungeon. And so he just says to the chief cupbearer, he says, when you're released, Remember me. Speak to Pharaoh on my behalf. Remember me. 
But how does the chapter end in verse 23? Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. The second thing that God is doing during these times is that he turns sorrow to joy. He turns sorrow to joy. Think about what it was like for those first few days after the chief cupbearer is released from prison. Think about Joseph's hopes are, are just soaring because he, he's, he's thinking the chief cupbearer is gonna go, he's gonna tell Pharaoh that I, I'm, I'm here wrongly. And so Joseph, every time that he heard footsteps coming down the hallway of the prison, he must have thought this is the moment. You know, I'm, I'm, someone's coming to get me. I'm going to have my freedom. I'm going to be released. But then the days go by and no one comes. And it's obvious that the chief cupbearer has simply forgotten him. And his hopes are just dashed. I mean, they've been sky high and just dashed. A few years after we were first married and uh, Melissa was expecting a baby and we were so excited about this, you know, and our hopes were up here. We were thinking about names and, you know, making plans. I mean, this was just like such a joyous thing that was happening. And then things started to happen physically that were troubling and I'll never forget the day sitting in the doctor's office and, and hearing the doctor say, the baby is passed in the womb. There's no, there's no life. And I just remember Melissa and I just holding one another and weeping. There were no words to say. We just held one another and wept. And some of you have been there, and maybe it wasn't a miscarriage. I mean, maybe it was something else in life, but your hopes were so high. Only to just be smacked, smacked down. This is Joseph here. This is Joseph. Ian Duguid says, God's training route for you may take you along a path that you would have never have chosen for yourself a path that will wind through the valley of deep shadow and take you into battles from which you will emerge with wounds whose depth only you and he know. Isn't that the truth? There are things that happen in your life that cut so deep and no one, no one but you and the Lord knows the pain of that. Do good continues which of us would choose to grow up in a dysfunctional family that would explode in violent and traumatic sin which of us would choose to be sold as a slave and carried into an alien culture the answer is clearly no one yet that was God's perfect plan for Joseph in our own lives, we quickly assume that wherever, whenever, wherever terrible abuse takes place or relationships fall apart or traumatic sin blights our lives, that God must surely be absent. Nothing could be further from the truth. His perfect plan for our lives often takes us right through 
the eye of the storm. But when that happens, God is right there with you in the storm. Jesus comes to you in the midst of that storm and he's with you every step of the way. You see, God was doing things in this situation that Joseph knows nothing about. What if Joseph had been released from prison at this point? then he never would have, would have been in the position two years later, which we'll talk about next week, when Pharaoh has a dream. And then he wouldn't have been in the position to interpret Pharaoh's dream, and then he wouldn't have been, if that had not happened, he would not have been in the position to be raised up by Pharaoh to be the administrator over the land of Egypt who was going to be used by God to save multitudes of lives during the famine, including the lives of the Jewish people through whom the Savior was going to be born. You see, Joseph's story, all of it, points straight to Christ. Straight to Christ. It's about him. Because you see, we all deserve the fate of the chief baker. But we don't have to be impaled for our sins because there was one who was impaled, crucified in our place. Jesus was sold for pieces of silver and wrongly accused and condemned and wrongly imprisoned and then nailed to a tree on our behalf and was raised from the dead so that we can have eternal life. And listen, if he loves you that much, don't you think that if God's greatest gift has been taken care of, our salvation, that every other need in our life, whatever that painful thing is, whatever the battle is, whatever, whatever the burden that you're carrying, do you not believe that God is going to be with you in providing and working through that? Yes, he is. Romans 8.32 says this, he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him grant us everything? The greatest issue in our lives has been taken care of. Christ died in our place and rose from the dead. Our eternal life is secured and he, is he who has already provided the greatest gift will take care of everything else, every need in life. And we can know that when we can't make sense of what's happening around us, there's a good and gracious God who's involved in every bit, sees everything, and he is at work for his glory and our good. Amy Carmichael said this, God never wastes his children's pain. 
He's taking everything in our lives, forming us, refining us, shaping us, and all the while, we can be certain that that soon and very soon, we are gonna be in a situation where there's no more pain, no more tears. They're all going to be wiped away. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are with us when we can't make sense of what's happening in life, when it seems to be stuck in a holding pattern, when waiting is hard, that you are with us in that. We thank you that we have a Savior who understands our pain, understands our suffering, because he's become a human being, and he's been there, and he's endured pain and suffering like we can never even fathom. And so you are able to sympathize with our weaknesses and you, you come to us and you are with us. You do not abandon your children. And you've already taken care of our greatest need by dying on the cross in our place, dying the death we should have died. And now we can have life because we have a risen Savior. And we know that, that one day that every tear is going to be wiped away, that all things are going to be made new, that we're going to be in a new heaven and earth with, with no more pain, no more sin. Weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And Lord, for those who know Christ, that morning is coming. It's coming soon. And I would just ask you right now as we just continue to pray, do you know Christ? Do you know him? as your Savior and Lord, if you're here in this room, if you're, if you're watching a video or listening to this message at some point in the future, do you know Christ as your Savior and Lord? You can know him. The work has been done. He loves you so much that he died on a cross for your sins. He has risen from the dead that you can have eternal life. You can know him. Open your life to him. Receive him as your Savior and Lord. Turn from trying to do life your own way apart from him. Turn to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Trust in him. Give your life to him. As believers, what is God speaking to you today in, in your own journey? What's that, what's that issue in your life where you need encouragement? and where the Spirit of God is coming to you and meeting with you and assuring you of his great love for you in, in the midst of your deepest need and maybe the darkness and the battle that you're in right now. Let the Lord love you. Let him minister to you. Let go of that. And let him, let him minister and heal and give hope to you, hope, faith, and love in the midst of this. So Father, would you work now in the hearts of your people, Lord? For anyone who needs Christ, Lord, would you open hearts to respond to the good news of the gospel? Lord, for believers, Lord, would you strengthen your people? Would you strengthen 
your church, that we would be the people that you called us to be in this world. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 